0: I think part of what makes it perfect is that it's so great at acknowledging some of the grandest truths about the world so compactly. No matter how perfect something is, it will not last. And it does that pretty much as compactly and perfectly as you could.
1: Well, I, I think that darkness highlights lightness in the same way for us. Darker subject matters are able to sort of highlight you know, the times when times are good. And
2: yeah. if something isn't fleeting, it is alien. And we can't value such a thing, I think. We value it's so thi- precious. Precisely. Things are precious because they are temporary. Hi, everyone. In today's recording, I'll chat with Kelly and Remy about a few more of our favorite Robert Frost poems. Today's quote of the day is from a short essay that Robert Frost wrote called The Figure a Poem Makes, in which he wrote this about the figure a poem makes. It begins in delight and ends in wisdom, in a clarification of life. Not necessarily a great clarification, such as sects and cults are founded on, but in a momentary stay against confusion. And for a few sublime momentary stays against confusion, let's go into that chat with me and Kelly and Remy. Howdy. Hi, Remy. Hi. Both of you so prompt. Uh, thank you. I want to talk about Directive. What page is Directive on? 266. Um, I think it's good that we're going to be contrasting a long poem. It's kind of long. Uh, It's not as long as Home Burial, which is another poem I really love. But it's good that we'll be contrasting long poems with short poems. I want to make sure that I don't talk about this poem for more than, let's say, 15 minutes, so that we have time to divide between your poems. And I also want to make sure that as I talk about this poem, I don't do all the talking, so I'll try to pull you guys in to my monologue here. Um... I hate that I will only have 15 minutes to talk about this poem. It's a life-changing poem. I love this poem more than I could possibly express or describe. Every time I reread it, I fall in love with it all over again. I see new things. I get new ideas from it. I could not possibly exhaust all of the reasons I love it in 15 minutes, but we'll do our best. We'll, We'll do what we can do. I think what I'll do is read through and kind of interrupt myself as I go and as I interrupt myself, invite you to speculate on certain issues. Yeah. So how, this is my first question. I'm already going to implicate you. How weird is the first line of this poem back out of all this now too much for us. What and why and how that's my question to you,
0: please. (laughs) I feel like it's almost an invitation. He's almost just saying like, let's back out of the world that we're in right now. That's way too much for us. So we can just kind of explore this this new world that I've seen. And I want you all to come with me on this journey, but you can't do that where you are. You have to be somewhere else.
2: Excellent. So it's a journey. He announced, there's like a thousand reasons. I love it. First of all, because he announces a journey, a journey in time, kind of respite from the troubles of the world. You know, the world is too much with us as, says, says Wordsworth Frost is inviting us to come back to a time in which it wasn't. I also love the pronoun us. This poem is already about me. And if you're a narcissist, like I am, you like this, you know, I have this pet theory that all all great lasting poetry has to be about everyone in some way. There are many ways for a poem to achieve this, but I think in some way, a lasting poem just has to achieve this. So I love this pronoun back out of all this now too much for us, but there's weird things going on here with meter and prosody.
1: Probably if I read it in like a workshop group, I'd be like, you need to change this. But since, since it is frost i give it a second look and i i do like the the meter that is going on here and the the single syllable words and mm-hmm. this like oh no what's what's it's not interrogative it's you tell someone what to do
2: well a direct a, a directive i mean it's a directive going back yeah, to the title directive. it's a uh, injunction that's not the word either imperative
1: imperative yeah i like the imperativeness of it and i i think the uh the monosyllabicness of it adds to the imperative. It's like that, 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 that. Tell you exactly what to do. I don't know. At first, I'm when I first read it, I'm like, that doesn't tell me anything. I get nothing out of this. There's no, there's no word to catch on to, to latch on to. Mm.
2: Are these the reasons why you're asserting that in a workshop most people would ask for a revision?
1: I mean. I would ask for a revision. I don't know about most people, but I need something in the first line to hold on to and there's nothing to hold. I feel like I'm falling into the past.
2: I think you're right. I mean, I don't disagree. I would say that that's part of its appeal to me. It's a kind of like, it's strangeness appeals to me. It's slight opacity. It's unclear in a certain way. I mean, I can make sense of it. Like Remy said, oh, he's inviting us to, to consider a time that has passed, but it's phrased. The syntax is slightly odd. Mm -hmm. I think part of why it works too
0: is the poem that comes after it excuses it. And I don't mean excuses it in like, oh, it's fine. Like it it just, I guess justifies it would be a better word. Uh Like the poem afterwards makes that line worthwhile. Whereas if you were to say that and then just, you know, talk about like a description of an overpass, not that that would be terrible, but it wouldn't be the same thing. It wouldn't be as excused. It wouldn't be as justified as it is with the rest of this poem that follows it.
2: And I love the staccato sound of it, and I love that it's this is iambic pentameter. It's ten words, ten monosyllables, but it's so extra metrical. How do we scan this? It's not da dum da dum da dum da dum da dum. It's bump 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 bump. You know, there's about eight stresses in that line, which metrical fireworks right off the bat. Okay, obviously we won't be reading the poem this slowly. Let me keep going. Back in a time made simple by the loss of detail, burned, dissolved, and broken off. I like those pauses in that line of detail, pause, burned pause, dissolved pause, and broken off like graveyard marble sculpture in the weather. Some wonderful assonance happening there. There is a house that is no more a house. And finally, we're given kind of clear footing. Oh, here's a a clear line. Here's a sentence I can understand. Upon a farm that is no more a farm and in a town that is no no more a town. A kind of triplet, triplicate uh, structure. There is an X that is no more an X. Yeah. It just seems so mythical. I'm being invited into into a kind of mythical past, which to me is highly appealing. The road there, if you'll let a guide direct you, who only has at heart your getting lost. Now, one of the reasons I love this poem so much is because I think it's a poem about how to live in the world, but it's also a poem about how to write poetry, I think. Great poets only have at heart your getting lost, I think. They want to create wonderful labyrinths for you that you love getting lost in. So I I hear in that line, a kind of announcement that, okay, if you keep reading this poem, this is the type of pleasure that's in store for you getting lost.
1: I had not thought of it that way, but now that you've said that, I really love that interpretation of it. The idea of a guide who is only there to like mess with you Mm -hmm. is such a delightful
2: idea. And a a poet, the the idea of a poet there who is, Mm -hmm. the idea of a poet who is saying, beware, I I am not trustworthy.
0: Well, I also like that it's like, you'll get through this, you have a guide, but you're going to get lost and it's going to be awesome. Like, I love that whole adventure feel. Mm -hmm. It's awesome.
2: It has a kind of biblical tinge to it, doesn't it? There are these scriptures, are there not whosoever loses his life shall find it. You know, so there's this kind of biblical echo of the good way or the right way is the way that involves darkness and fog and thorns. If The road there, if you let a guy direct you who only has at heart you're getting lost, may seem as if it should have been a quarry. Great monolithic knees. The former town long since gave up pretense of keeping covered. I love this scale of metaphor. That's something Frost is great at. These huge, I guess, granite hills, think of the hills in New England, look like knees to him. So this is a collapse of big and small. And there's an also he folds into this metaphor, a wonderful reference to the town's kind of religious conservatism or a sense of morality. All they cared about was this kind of general facade of modesty. Quite wonderful. And there's a story in a book about it. Another assertion that we're entering mythical territory. Besides the wear of iron wagon wheels, the ledges show lines ruled southeast, northwest, the chisel work of an enormous glacier that braced his feet against the Arctic pole. I love that he sees the, he's like, this is kind of a bird's eye, God's eye view. If you were flying in an airplane, you could see the road, but you could also see carved in the landscape these scars from this glacier. So I love that we're getting... A view of what would, what this road would look like if we were traveling it, but also from above, yeah? I also
0: like that he takes on so much in so short of a time. He tells, like, there were wagon wheels. This is a massive, like, valley sort of thing that was carved by a glacier. I'm going to describe how the little details of the town looks, how the great details of the town looks. And he does that in, like, five lines. Yeah. And it's it's incredible how much he can just pack in with just, like, describing the things he sees, basically. It's really fascinating.
2: And we've also talked in this class about how important it is to ground your poem in a specific and literal place. He clearly is has begun this poem announcing its mythical and archetypal and universal resonance, this, this prior time, this prior life, this prior world. But this is a specific New England-esque location that looks like New England and smells like New England you know, and sounds like New England. It's not a generic place. It's a specific valley. And it's because of that very specificity that the poem becomes real. Even if it's not our place, it's a real place. And we respond to it because of that. The Arctic pole. You must not mind a certain coolness from him still said to haunt this side of Panther Mountain, a specifically named place, nor need you mind the serial ordeal of being watched from 40 cellar holes. This journey will involve tests and trials, you know, this... He's already building the illusions for the Holy Grail reference that he will end the poem on. Like if you are a knight going on a quest, what is an ingredient in that story? Trials and tests, tests of courage. And one of them is the sense that you're being watched. So don't mind that. Be brave. Keep going. Being watched from 40 cellar holes as if by eye pairs out of 40 firkins. Yeah, firkin is a um, like a barrel, small barrel, yeah? Get the sound of the haunted. It's almost like Ichabod Crane esque. Yeah, it's because it's haunted woods that you're being spied on by all these people. As for the woods' excitement over you that sends light rustle rushes to their leaves, charge that to upstart inexperience. Where were they all not twenty years ago? They think too much of having shaded out a few old pecker fretted apple trees. So there's all these new saplings growing. Again, it's a specific type of forest. Make yourself up a cheering song of how someone's road home from work this once was. Listen to the meter of that. It's not quite iambic pentameter. He's quite flexible with the meter. Someone's road home from work this once was. Bump bump bum, bum, bum bum, ba, bum, 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 Right? Instead of da-dum, 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 da-dum. Why is that kind of metrical variation worthy of praise? Well, one thing I think Frost just generally does really, really well
0: is his poems build up to specific moments. And so there's these like, you know, there's these descriptions and there's this mysticality and stuff that builds and builds and builds and builds and builds. And then it gets to this one moment where it's just like, blah, and it's amazing. Yeah. And often those lines will bring you back into some form of reality or will bring you back to some elevated like understanding of the world. And those are often the lines that often the lines that he breaks meter, and so okay. he's telling this whole big story about this crazy mystical place, and then he's like, "And now I'm going to bring you back." Someone rode home from work on this trail. Okay, and when yeah. he does that, it's this be- beautiful moment. But he does break meter to kind of make you focus on it slightly more.
2: Excellent. So I don't know if we've talked about that Yeats quote in this class about how Yeats's idea of meter is that it's supposed to lull us slightly asleep with its regularity, but a good metrical poet will include enough variation that we're woken up by the variety. And the moments that Frost wants us to be, I don't know if this is always strategic, but you're probably right, Remy, that he's calling us awake at certain moments because of the trip that we kind of stumble a little bit, yeah, on purpose.
1: I would see metrical variation as the author has something so important to say that he can't put it in the Meter that he was working in because it is so important that he says it the way that he means it. I don't know. That's not probably always true, but like I need to say this this one way and it doesn't fit the meter, but I need to say it this way, and so I'm going to say it this way.
2: Yeah, Frost was in love with the sound of the human voice and the cadences of human speech. It it is often said that iambic pentameter is is the sound of human speech, and this is it's close to the sorry English. It's often said that iambic pentameter is the sound of English speech, that it's we talk mostly in iambic pentameter. And that's kind of true, but it's kind of not true. So Frost wants to emphasize the beauties inherent in natural speech. So he wants, as Kelly's point, he wants to say it in the way he wants to say it because he wants us to hear a human talking, not a metronome beeping. Someone's road home from work this once was who may be just ahead of you on foot or creaking with a buggy load of grain. Wonderful lines, wonderful images there to help ground us, to help give us something to look at. Also, we can hear maybe in the extra metrical, we haven't really talked about meter in class yet. That's one thing we're going to do in class on Wednesday, but you can imagine a creaking buggy isn't creaking in a metronomic way. It's creaking with lots of variations and irregularity. The sound is echoing the sense there. The height of the adventure is the height of country where two village cultures faded into each other. Both of them are lost. And if you're lost enough to find yourself by now, very biblical sounding to me, yes. Um, But also, I think he's giving us writing advice. You know, I'll quote it till I die. Uh, He says, a poem has to ride its own melting like ice on a hot stove. Poems often fail because they're too willed or too insistent on going in a certain direction or because their authors aren't open enough to surprise. Do you know what I mean? I think ideally when you're writing a poem, welcome the sense of feeling lost in the act of composition. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how this poem will end. And it's that very sense of lostness through which we find a kind of poetic salvation. And I'm using the word salvation on purpose there. It might seem grandiose, but just think of the ending of this poem. Do you have any thoughts about that? Zooming out, talking about writing poetry on a meta level and how important it is to get lost in the act of writing and not be too insistent on one direction.
1: From my own experience, I've definitely seen that. Like if I am trying to write a poem about something and I have a destination in mind when I'm trying to write it, it usually ends up being an absolutely awful poem. Um, But then the poems where I write, I have maybe a subject in mind, but I have no idea what I want to say about the subject. And then I just start writing that usually ends up in a much better place than the other than the other kind of poem
2: and I think this can work frontwards to backwards or backwards to frontwards it's not only a matter of not knowing where the poem will end maybe we know where we want to end but we don't know how to get there so it could be the beginning that we have to surprise ourselves into I think one of the things I've kind of noticed as I try to write
0: poetry is that like I realize I'm not a great poet if I just try to be a great poet. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if I'm trying real hard to write the best thing I can write as good as I can and I'm really putting my my full gusto into it, it doesn't happen because it's trying so hard to be forced. Because okay. um, I think poetry is a lot more about discovering what is amazing and a lot less about trying to force something amazing. You Like you happen upon words and it's like, oh my gosh, if you organize these words in this way, yeah. they're incredible together. And it's not because you made up words that sound incredible together, but it's because you found something that works and something that is great. And it's just because you happened upon it more than because you forced it into existence.
2: Yeah, you happened upon it. I think that's a great phrase. You have to go on a journey and you don't know what you'll find on this trail. So let me keep going here. If you're lost enough to find yourself by now, pull in your ladder road behind you and put a sign up closed to all but me. Wow. Then make yourself at home. I love these slightly longer sentences followed by these short sentences. The only field now left's no bigger than a harness gall. A harness gall is where a harness would rub on a a horse's shoulders and make this kind of sore. First, there's the children's house of make-believe, some shattered dishes underneath a pine. The playthings in the playhouse of the children weep for what little things could make them glad. Now, the poem has already achieved for me kind of amazing spiritual profundity small broken toys are miracles you know so much depends upon a red wheelbarrow because it's a small little insignificant thing weep for what little things could make them glad these are sacramental objects you know all objects no matter how undane are potentially holy grails I just think that's so beautiful. Then for the house that is no more a house, but only a belilacked cellar hole. How beautiful is that? Imagine this old cellar hole, but it's overgrown in this abandoned house. It's overgrown by all these lilacs. Man, a belilacked cellar hole now slowly closing like a dent in dough. <laughs> it just gets better and better. This was no playhouse, but a house in earnest. Your destination and your destinies, a brook that was the water of the house, cold as a spring and yet so near its source, too lofty and original to rage. I love these parentheses that follow. We know the valley streams that when aroused will leave their tatters hung on barb and thorn. What is the effect of that pause? To me, he's pausing the poem. He's like, okay, you can tell we're building up. We're almost to the end. We're mid crescendo here. Parenthetical pause. Why do that? What effect is being achieved? I think it's almost hearkening
0: back to that first line where it says, we like back out of all this now too much for us. It's, it's kind of hearkening back to like, yeah, we're going on this adventure and we know we're going on this adventure and we have a lot more knowledge about it than we're recognizing. And I just kind of want to pull you back into your own reality for a second. And it's almost a contrast against this like beauty he's
2: made in this journey, if that makes sense. It's, it's a reminder of the communal nature of this utterance and of this experience. It's another zoom out to the larger versus the microscopic of these little play dishes. And natural beauty versus, yeah, human uh, beauty.
1: I mean, to me, it sort of reminds me of when in, in music, there's this really big thing, and then there's a, a pause where they just let silence fill the air for a second, and then they like end it with, the like resolution I guess and so this is acting as the the pause before the the resolution at the end
2: I love that and the effect of I mean I think poetry has much more in common with music maybe than with painting the effect of the pause is to prolong suspense to prolong the crescendo to make it last longer slow down you know make this moment last longer I have kept hidden to me, and there's nothing really metrical that says that this is a valid reading, but I have kept hidden is the type of thing you say in a whispered voice. So I hear, I, I hear him kind of leaning in and whispering to us, you know, which again, musically is a wonderful moment of variation. We go from too lofty and original to rage, which is lofty and full of rage. I have kept hidden. In the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside, a broken drinking goblet, like the grail, under a spell. Okay, let me pause there. What? What is your attitude about this person talking to you at this moment in the poem?
1: I mean, I've done this. I don't know. I don't know how old this speaker is. I have to imagine probably an adult, but I don't know. But like when I was a kid, I'd be like, I've got this cool thing that I can't take home or like I don't want my parents to know I have or like Mm. I don't know just is a cool rock and and I'm gonna hide it in this specific tree and no one will ever know it's there because it's just this random tree that only I know about Mm -hmm. and I'm gonna hide it there and then I can find it again and it it does sort of have this feeling of magical mystery secret Mm -hmm. like as a kid you don't don't have the ability to have many secrets at all your parents know every single thing about you (laughs) and so the little secrets that you are able to have are really special and feel like magic
2: I love that, just the sense of something precious, it doesn't even it's a broken kid's goblet it's not precious objectively the reverence with which he's treating it and the fact that he's kept it hidden i am brought into this mystery i am brought into the secret again not to get too ars poetica e here but it's it's like for a moment through because of the poem he and i get to whisper to each other i just find that so beautiful i don't know i just like that it turns really personal
0: for him in this moment the whole poem has just been kind of a, a grand explanation of things. And this is the first time when it's very much like, this is my personal secret moment. Yep. He he takes it to the whole world even. He's like, look, there's massive glaciers that carve valleys. But I also had this personal little moment in that valley that the glacier carved. And it's kind of cool to like go from so grand
2: to so intimately personal. It's maybe the first time in the poem he says, I... Which is telling, okay, I have kept hidden in the instep arch of an old cedar at the waterside, a broken drinking goblet like the grail under a spell. Who are you who can cast spells? This is poetry. You know, that's what I don't like interpreting poems. This is not my interpretation, but he can cast spells. He's proven that he can cast spells and his spells are his poems under a spell. So the wrong ones can't find it. So can't get saved as St. Mark says they mustn't. Now, he's referencing these verses. Let me just read them to you here. This is Mark chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. It's almost like he's saying this is too sacred
0: for the layman. I, I can't just let anyone find this goblet, find this this place that I have. Yeah. This is this is my own little thing, and I I don't want it to
2: be desecrated. And look at what's being elevated—not a piece of gold, but the, probably a you know a piece of wood or you know metal or something. Just a, a piece of garbage almost. Everything is potentially sacred.
1: I mean, I'm still just thinking about being a kid and doing this type of thing myself we'd like mush up berries and pretend that there were like magical healing salves or something but only the people who we were playing with could know about them and so i think the speaker is talking uh, like you know to this this you person who's contained in the us and so the only people who are allowed to be saved in this sense is the speaker and this, the person that they are addressing, which I think St. Mark would take issue with, because I don't think only two people are allowed to go to heaven. But in this world that the speaker is making, the only two worthy people are, are them.
2: Well, the, he could be imagining a whole variety of readers that one at a time, you know, get to come in and look, Maybe. <laughs> know, look at the grail. Are poems peril, I I promise I'll get to the end and I promise we'll move on. Are poems parables, are poems utterances whose true meaning is hidden and has to be teased out? Sure. How so?
1: I I think it probably depends on the poem. I think there are some poems that are very straightforward in in what they mean. I'm thinking of like Ogden Nash's like zoo poems. Um, Okay, Okay, yeah. But I think for the most part, like serious poems, you do need to take a moment to reflect on them and get whatever it is that you need to get out of them. I always say, hate saying that poems are about something, but they often are. And sometimes that isn't always clear until you do sit down and sort of interrogate the poem a little bit or comb through it or let it play on your mind I don't
2: know. <laughs> yeah, there are utterances that reward attention. I think yes. that's my favorite way of describing this parable metaphor. There are utterances that reward attention. The more you give it, the more it will give you. so it's not they're not secret codes necessarily, but they're kind of wells they will re, they will reward more and more attention. I'll go to the end here. as Saint. Mark says, you mustn't. I stole the goblet from the children's playhouse. Here are your waters and your watering place. Drink and be whole again beyond confusion. Man. When I read this, I think the way to live is to treat everything as if it's sacred. And that will that attitude will make you whole. I also think about poetry. You know, poetry, Frost said, is a momentary stay against confusion. We drink a poem. And they make us whole. You know, the world is confusing. It's hard to live in the world. It's chaotic and confusing. Poems help temporarily abate that. Let's turn to some of your favorites because I've now hogged way too much of the time. Kelly, what poem of, of, of the ones you nominated would you really like to swoon over?
1: I don't know. <laughs> um, I guess I really did enjoy A Patch of Old Snow. Yeah. On page 171.
2: Very good. Do you want to read it, Kelly? Sure. And then, yeah, just tell us why you love it and tell us what what we can learn about how to write our own poems from reading this poem.
1: Okay. A Patch of Old Snow. There's a patch of old snow in a corner that I should have guessed was a blown away paper the rain had brought to rest. It is speckled with grime as if small print overspread it. The news of a day I've forgotten if I ever read it. I just think it's so, I don't know, cute. Like, maybe that's not a good thing for a poem to be, but I really appreciate it. You're right. It's a fine thing for a poem to be. I I am really drawn to short poems, first of all. I just really love them Um, because when they are successful, the the author is able to pack so much into such a small space. And it's so impressive. Uh But then I'm also drawn to, to small ideas in poems and, like, just a patch of old snow. How much lower and smaller can you get than just like the ugly snow that's left in March or February or whatever? Yes, exactly. Um, and I feel like if you have ever seen snow or lived in a place with snow, you know exactly this the gross grimy snow like the you can picture the exact color and yeah it looks like old newspaper too and Mm. and also just the experience of like what is that over there and is that paper did someone leave trash in me my yard and oh no it's just the snow still sticking around this this focus on the small insignificant ugly thing that becomes significant when poetic attention is placed upon it and also just i don't know it become it transforms it into the news which is Mm -hmm. such a different concept from just a, a patch of snow
2: i couldn't have expressed that better it's almost a mini version of directive it almost makes a similar argument in a, on a miniature scale. There is nothing that couldn't be sacred. There's nothing that isn't worthy of poetic attention. Yeah. I love this metaphor of the news. First of all, it's just a great metaphor that old dirty snow looks like newsprint. It's just, it's such a great metaphor. It's so, so good. But then he very economically and charmingly, you said cutely, hints that what is a newspaper? A newspaper contains news. A newspaper is something that preserves days. It preserves the history of our people, you know, something that's always slipping away. So just like, just like, um, just like a news, newspaper, this is a poem that is trying to preserve a patch of something that's just going to melt and dissolve into the abyss of time. It's, no, hold on, hold on. There's nothing that's not worth holding on to. Remy, thoughts about this that we, that you could add?
0: I also love that there's like a slight mystery on whether it's a patch of old snow or a melting piece of newspaper. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, was a blowaway paper. The rain had brought to rest speckled with grime as if small print overspread it. Like it could be either one, but either one would have basically the same effect. The whole poem is just kind of like, you know, the giant metaphor of like, yeah, if we focus on the little things and we like, there's everything is sacred in that whole thing, but the everything that could be sacred is either a piece of trash or a piece of grimy snow and either of
2: those are so worthwhile. Yeah. Do we have anything to say about rhyme, meter, form? How is he good at rhyme? How is he good at form? What is it about the sound of the poem that excels? You can answer that question. I'll put two questions on the table. You can choose your own questions. We choose your own adventure. (laughs) Second question, maybe semi-related. Are there attributes in Frost poems I mean, I I believe T.S. Eliot is right to say that all art exists simultaneously, meaning that when a work of art is timeless, it is precisely that, timeless. It is relevant to all people in all times. This doesn't necessarily, however, mean that stylistically we can write in the exact same way as previous eras. Frost is now 100 years behind us. Are there certain stylistic things that you think are no longer available for us to imitate when we read Frost? You can answer the rhyme and meter and form question, or you can answer the what can't we imitate question. And you can do so in the context of this poem or any other poem that you'd like to reference.
1: I think those questions are kind of related because I think when I think about imitating Frost, I do kind of think that this meter and rhyme is a little hard, not hard, but like you can't imitate it and be successful in today's sort of poetic, climate because this sort of very strict rhythm and rhyme that almost sort of sounds like a nursery rhyme or just it has been relegated to nursery rhymes and like non-serious poems Um, and uh, that's unfortunate because I think that it's fun but you know I it does sort of give it this vibe of very tongue-in-cheek it can't be serious that makes sense
2: there are there are a handful of poets who who maybe more than a handful, who write in such strict forms. So it's not totally extinct, but it does come with a kind of self-consciously antiquated aura.
0: Well, and also to tag onto that, often people will use rhyme and meter as a cheap way to make something poetry. Okay. You know, if you, you can string together a sequence of words, and if they have rhythm and rhyme, and they're about the same topic, you can say, ta-da, it's a poem. And I think Frost does a really good job of just having those happen to be part of an already great poem. And I think it's yeah. really easy to to let those become what makes your poem a poem and not let those just be something that supplements something that otherwise would still be great.
2: Excellent. Look at the first stanza of this. Look at how natural the utterance is. So the goal, I've said this before, but the goal when you write in this kind of strict form is to sound natural, sound like a human and almost seem to accidentally be rhyming. There's a patch of old snow in a corner that I should have guessed was a blown away paper the rain had brought to rest. That doesn't sound too bejeweled. It doesn't t- sound too fancy. It doesn't sound too... None of, none of the syntax is bent out of place to fit the rhyme. It sounds quite organic. I think this is the goal. We should go to one of your poems, Remy. Which poem would you like to highlight? Um, I loved the one,
0: uh, Never Again Would the Bird Song Be the Same. It's such a great poem. It's so Uh, good. Do
2: you want to read it? Yeah, sure. This is on page 196. He would declare
0: and could himself believe that the birds there and all the garden round, from having heard the day-long voice of Eve, had added to their own an oversound. Her tone of meaning, but without the words. Admittedly, an eloquence so soft could only have an influence upon birds, when call or laughter carried it aloft. Be that as it may, she was in their song. Moreover her voice upon their voices, crossed, had now persisted in the woods so long that probably it never would be lost. Never again would Bird's song be the same.
2: And to do that to birds was why she came. So uh, teach us why you love this poem and what it can teach us about how to write poetry. It's such a great
0: topic. I think beyond just like how brilliantly it's written the content of it itself is fascinating. To think about like every time you hear a bird sing, you're hearing the voice of Eve sort of, Mm -hmm. that's just such a cool idea to think of anyway. And then the beauty that surrounds that incredible idea is so much fun. Like it's just a, it's a gorgeous poem.
2: It's a kind of love poem, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to Eve, to music, perhaps to a woman in Frost's life, it's hard to say. So gorgeously phrased had added to their own an over sound. Wow. Why is that so beautiful? Somebody explain beauty to me. Why is that so beautiful? Oversound. Even that one word. Why is the word oversound beautiful?
0: I don't know. I think it's partially because it preserves the beauty of what birds do already. Because what birds do already in singing and whistling and stuff is gorgeous. There's, you know, it'd be hard to deny that Eve's voice wouldn't be pretty much perfect. And so it's almost just kind of like saying
2: over the top of what's already beautiful, there's more beauty. I don't know if that's. But there, yeah, there. Are, beauty is layered. You know, beauty is nuanced. Beauty has, um, yeah, <laughs> oversound. I, I can't explain it. <laughs> You've done better than I could have.
1: I know. I'm personally still struggling to grasp this poem, but you have forced me to think about the word oversound a lot. <laughs> um, and now I'm thinking about. I think the reason why I like that that word a lot is it sounds like. I don't know the sound that is over other sound bird song is so bright and, and high and all, all the words that you could use to describe bird song, give it this elevation. And so when you sort of picture sound, I get some synesthesia in there. Mm. I don't know. You picture a bird song floating on the top of whatever other noises, you know, the wind is maybe just below that. And like, I don't know, crickets are down mm. at the bottom or something. <laughs> um, and it's sort of this free noise yeah. that's at the top of everything else.
2: Can I get annoyingly philosophical for a few minutes? So I'm going to take us into the clouds and we'll be annoying poets talking about annoying philosophy. And then I promise to ground us again on the earth and we'll get practical for a second here. So I don't like paraphrasing the poem, but maybe it's necessary in order to ask my question. So. The birds in the Garden of Eden hear Eve and add to their songs an over sound. And the, the voice of the birds and the voice of Eve kind of cross, crisscross in the air. And the voice of Eve kind of permanently embeds itself into the air, probably never would be lost. Never again would bird song be the same. And to do that to birds was why she came. Surely this poem is a kind of parable, speaking of parables, about the nature of art where does art come from? Kelly took a class for me about nature and poetry. a Long time ago, it seems. Totally different life, wasn't it? It's was a whole other life back then in the olden days when we could meet in a room. Is poetry, does poetry come from nature? Does poetry imitate nature? Is, is art in general something that is totally from the human realm and not the natural realm? I guess I'm just asking you, if if Frost has already invited us to consider poems as parables, And this poem is referring to a biblical story. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, what is this poem teaching us about the source of art? I told you this would be annoying, but don't worry because I have a a less annoying follow-up. Where does poetry come from? Well, I think one of the things it's trying to say is that it's referencing the first
0: human. You know, with the exception of Adam, Eve is the first human ever. And one of the things that he's saying is like crucial to her existence was to ensure that birds were beautiful, and to give that art and that beauty to the world. And so, I think it's kind of a combo, of saying like the natural world and the world that exists is already incredible, and part of what makes it so incredible is our ability to appreciate it and make art about it and make art from it.
2: Hmm. It's a kind of I get this image of you know when you uh, when a microphone is too close to a speaker and it's there's this feedback loop, and they amplify each other. I see. This is a horrible kind of interpretation. I apologize to the ghost of Robert Frost. I apologize. I see a positive version of that happening in this poem where human the human world and the natural world amplify each other's beauty again and again and again and again. And we live in this kind of union in which each side amplifies the best aspects of each other. Thoughts, Kelly, before I before I attempt to save us from my own question.
1: Um, I mean, I was sort of thinking the same thing that both of you said. I I think the the way this last line is phrased is so interesting. And to do that to birds was why she came. Yes, She is influencing these birds, which uh, one of the things that we talked about a lot in that nature and poetry class that was so long ago um, was how like nature doesn't really, I mean,
2: it's there complicated, are exceptions.
1: but yeah. <laughs> Nature doesn't really change based on humans' perceptions of nature. Like Eve was the, you know, according to this poem, I guess, sort of, Eve was the first person to recognize birds as beautiful. And then that perspective changed birds in the eyes of humans, but it didn't actually change birds. I, I But this this poem seems to be arguing maybe... The opposite—that the birds were in fact changed by Eve's perception of their beauty. Yeah, which is so interesting.
2: I think so. I think we have a bigger—you know—this is Oscar Wilde. I'm almost done here. I promise. um Life imitates art. You know, I think Frost. This is Frost's maybe version of that. Okay, we have a little bit of time. I'm tempted to take us to another Adam and Eve poem, and that's a spring poem. Is that okay? It's a very small poem, page two twenty-three. Nothing gold can stay. This is maybe one of the few, so there's a difference between a great poem and a perfect poem. I think a poem can be great and still have flaws. I think this is definitely true. A poem can be great, capital G, and lasting, capital L, and still not be perfect. It can still, I don't know, be slightly too vague or slightly too cute or slightly too ugly. Um, there are a handful of poems in the English language that are perfect, that are without flaw. I would nominate to Autumn. I would also nominate this poem. It's called Nothing Gold Can Stay. Why is this perfect? Why is this a perfect poem? <laughs> That's my question. Nothing Gold Can Stay. Nature's first green is gold. Her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaf's a flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf. So Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down to day. Nothing gold can stay. Wow, it's, it's springtime which is almost coming up soon the first leaves come out they are yellow they're not actually green they're slightly they're so brightly green that they're yellow you know this is what he's talking about and then they they fade to green and then they fade of course again and again why do i think this is a perfect poem i think part of what makes it perfect is that
0: it's so great at acknowledging some of the grandest truths about the world so compactly yeah. you know it basically talks about like no matter how perfect something is, it will not last perfectly for very long. And it does that pretty much as compactly and perfectly as you could. You know, you probably couldn't say that this concretely and this like evidently yep. much
2: better. So it, you've probably said four great things. It, it, it couldn't get more macroscopic or universal. It talks about death, decay, loss, perfection, time. It talks about the the most universal layer of human existence, but it does so in a way that is utterly condensed and distilled. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny little poem. And as you say, Remy, it does so in a way that's totally clear. We're never lost. These sentences are so simple and so short. So it, it combines utter simplicity with utter grandness. And it grounds these grand ideas in concrete images and concrete objects.
1: I mean, honestly, it's just that distilling of truth into beautiful, small language. It it is a short poem. It is about small things, but it's also about big things. Um, And it is a big poem. And you know you've made it when your poem becomes like the shorthand way of expressing like, you know, whenever something changes and from something really good to something really bad, you know, people will say, "Eh, nothing gold can stay, you know, like, and
2: so it has that, it has that aphoristic quality that we talked about in the first podcast, aphoristic quality Mm -hmm. to do that to birds was why she came Is another one of these aphorisms. This is a sad poem. Nothing gold can stay. Nothing. Oh, listen to this little nursery rhyme. I like nursery rhymes. And then you get to the end. Wait, this is sad. Nothing gold can stay. Do we want to comment on a macro level about Frost's dark element in two minutes? Reading these, lots of people die. Someone gets their hand chopped off first and then dies. Um, There's lots of violence, lots of poverty. Um, There are poems about witches, lots of horror, lots of grief. So much grief. Any comments about this? You mentioned when you
0: were kind of like writing to us about the different topics we might cover that Frost has been called a terrifying poet. Indeed. Um, and I think part of what's so terrifying about it is the grief and the sadness and the violence is beautiful. I don't want to say he revels in it, but he kind of revels in it, you know, he revels in how beautiful that is.
2: And it makes it eerily bearable. You know what I mean? Uh, like, well, what do you mean by I know, I, I think I agree with the reveling. I mean, just read a poem like design or once by the Pacific to get or out out to get a sense of what, what do you mean by more bearable like for example nothing gold can stay holy crap time passes people are imperfect
0: and you're realizing all of these like kind of tragic truths about the world he finds a way to recognize incredible amounts of beauty in that yeah and that's a skill that i think is really important in being able to kind of deal with is not quite the right word but deal with those things and and feel with and like grow from those things and so it's kind of it's still creepy to find the beauty in it and it's almost unsettling to find the beauty in things like that. Like to find beauty in like a spider eating a eating a moth because the moth got trapped is kind of you know, twisted. Yeah. But it's it's also amazing to be able to do that and to recognize that beauty in the world. Kelly, thoughts?
2: This will close us out here. You have the last word.
1: Well, I, I think that darkness highlights lightness. I think that sort of is one of the messages you can take from Nothing Gold Can Stay is, you know, dawn goes down to day. Day is brighter than dawn, you know. Mm. Um, Dawn may be more precious because it is shorter, but like it is not more precious because it is brighter necessarily. Mm. And, you know, Eden sank to Grief, when, you know, in our religious tradition, we acknowledge that, like, that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like, right. the leaf subsides to leaf. The small leaves give way to these bigger, more vibrant green leaves. So I, I think in the same way, Frost's darker subject matters are able to sort of highlight, you know, the times when times are good. And yeah. I, I don't know.
2: Don't be afraid of balancing you got this question, Kelly, because you recently read and you were asked, "Why are your poems well, what, your poems so dark? Your your poems are not so dark." Um Yeah, I know. Sorry. No, they're not. Um but they but, but of course, like any great poems, they acknowledge they they are they are open-eyed about the suffering in the world. Things aren't gold that last. If we want the goldness, if we want the beauty, we have to accept the fleetingness. If something isn't fleeting, it is uh alien And we can't value such a thing, I think. We value... It's so precious. Precisely. Things are precious because they are temporary. And with that, we will end. (laughs) Go out and enjoy spring, everyone. Look for those first green leaves. Those first yellow leaves. Yeah, thank you for coming so well prepared and for a great chat. Bye. Thanks so much. Take care. So for today's prompt, I want to harken back to the quote of the day, a poem begins in delight and ends in wisdom. And using directive as an example of a poem that does this, I want you to begin thinking about drafting a poem that has a similar arc. Begin a poem with a joke or with some kind of levity, some kind of irony, some kind of moment of superficial delight. Birches could be another example of a poem that does this. Start out just by observing some bent over trees, and then slowly, gradually, as you continue this free write, baby step your way carefully, step by step, into territory that is more serious, that attempts to say something true about the world and about the human condition. You can begin drafting a new poem this way, or you can use this model of beginning in delight and ending in wisdom as a method to revise a poem that you already have on the go. But I think generally there are, of course, exceptions to this. Not every poem fits this model exactly. But I think generally speaking, most poems do. So if you think about it as you revise or start a new poem, I think it will really help you make some important progress. Okay, that's it for now. Next up, a couple of you and me will be chatting about Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. I'm looking forward to. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to be a great poet.